0: You can turn to your Bibles to Deuteronomy 21. I'll be reading chapter 21, verse 10, through 22, verse 12. When you go out to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God gives them into your hand, and you take them captive, and you see among the captives a beautiful woman, and you desire to take her to be your wife, and you bring her home to your house, she shall shave her head and pare her nails, and she shall take off the clothes in which she was captured and shall remain in your house and lament her father and her mother a full month. After that, you may go into her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. But if you no longer delight in her, you shall let her go where she wants, but you shall not sell her for money, nor shall you treat her as a slave, since you have humiliated her. If a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him children, and if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, then on the day when he assigns his possessions as an inheritance to his son, He may not treat the son of the loved as the firstborn in preference to the son of the unloved, who is the firstborn, but he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the firstfruits of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then the father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of his city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree. But you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and ignore them. You shall take them back to your brother. And if he does not live near you and you do not know who he is... You shall bring it home to your house, and it shall stay with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. And you shall do the same with his donkey, or with his garment, or with any lost thing of your brother's, which he loses and you find. You may not ignore it. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen down by the way and ignore them. You shall help him to lift them up again. A woman should not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. If you come across a bird's nest in any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs and the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall let the mother go, but the young you may take for yourself that it may go well with you, and that you may live long. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house, if anyone should fall from it. You shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, lest the whole yield be forfeited, the crop that you have sown and the yield of the vineyard. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. You shall not wear cloth of wool and linen mixed together. You shall make yourself castles on the four corners of the garment with which you cover yourself. Thus ends the reading this morning.
1: Really is good to be back with you. Um, I was not here last Sunday uh, because Chris and Maria, myself, uh, were in Bolivia last week. Uh, It's in the middle of South America, if you're not familiar um, with that part of the world. We were serving both Sovereign Grace Church of Santa Cruz, uh, led by David del Castillo, as well as another church in a a place called Cochabamba. You think, Cochabamba? What? Cochabamba. (laughs) It's it's in the middle of Bolivia, roughly. And that church is pursuing adoption into our denomination, um, into Sovereign Grace. It's led by a brother named Eric Miranda. Um, every fall, David, with, with the church in Santa Cruz, they, they organize a conference, a three-day conference for the members of their church and for believers around Bolivia um, who are hungry for biblical teaching and worship that makes much of Christ. Uh, so thank you for praying for us last Sunday. I was told that Josh Jr. was doing that and, and I was able to preach uh, the opening session on God's design for the family. Uh, from Genesis 1 and 2, and then to also give a a workshop on engaging biblically with same-sex attraction. Um, Not easy topics at any stretch. And then Chris and Maria were able to speak uh, together about parenting. And I believe this was the first time, correct me if I'm wrong, bro, that you gave your entire message by yourself in Spanish. Is that right? Yes. So well done, my friend. I was super proud of Chris. Um, Coming back, uh, the spirit impressed three realities on my heart. I had to sneak this in before we we jump into Deuteronomy. And there's actually a connection here I want to point out that I trust will help us. Here's the first reality. I came back more convinced God is building his church in Santa Cruz. God's building. No less than he's building here. Um, if you've been around for a while, we've talked about church in Santa Cruz. We helped them get started during COVID. And, a, and after years of faithful sowing, here's, here's where I see the Lord at work. He's providing coworkers for David and Hodweed. He's providing mature, godly men and women to come to the church, be added to the body. They're eager to serve. And they really are holding up David's arms as a pastor. In practical ways. That is a huge answer to prayer. So, God's building His church. Second reality impressed on my heart coming back, I was reminded that God sovereignly uses all the details of our life to advance the gospel. We were talking about that in our Sunday school class this morning. Here's the reality we would not be involved in Bolivia. I don't think this is an exaggeration. If this pastor had not married the woman next to him, if you don't know Maria, Uh, She is a Bolivian, 100% Bolivian, and uh, Maria is totally in her element down there. So I didn't ask if I could do this because I thought you would say no. So thank you for letting me honor you, Maria. Um, She's chatting it up in Spanish. She's she's guarding me as the obvious six-foot-one white American guy from eating things that would make me sick and and loving the members of the church. Um, She's so good in Spanish. It's very easy for her, young and old alike. And as I came back, I was just thanking God that he gave you faith to marry Chris, (laughs) right? That's miracle number one. Um, But, but second that, you know, the Lord would then bring both of you to Richmond and add you and Chris to our body. And through you guys open up a door of ministry and opportunity to, to really the Spanish speaking world. Um, and I look at that, Maria, and I think, Lord, help us to never assume that any detail of our life is outside of His purposes. You know, did, did, did Maria know that when Chris asked her to marry her? Well, this is going to lead to, you know, we're going to be at Kingsway and it's going to open up these opportunities and the gospel is going to go forward. And a guy named Matthew, who's really kicking around in King's Kids still right now, is, you know, it's like, no. <laughs> It's not a strategic plan from the fifty-year whatever, but that's how God works. I just came back reminded, don't friend, don't don't write out any detail of your life from the, the category of things God is using to make much of him. So grateful for that. And then finally, here's our Deuteronomy connection. Um I came back convinced of this, that though we live in different countries and Bolivia is very different uh, than the U S we love the same savior. Uh, We we're committed to the authority of the same word. We're, We're engaged in the same mission to make disciples of Jesus Christ that the moment you step off the plane, everything feels foreign. I mean, even singing this morning, it was good to be, you know, back and, um, clapping on American beats. There's a, there's a way we clap. They, they clap on the opposite beats. And for the entire conference, it, it, it was just like all I could do. The musician in me was just going crazy, Ben. Um, everything, so many things feel foreign. But, but all of that cultural difference, you know what that does? It, it just highlights, by contrast, the unchanging worth and glory of God. Whether you're in Bolivia or you're in America, our God is the same. Whether you're singing to him in Spanish or in English, he's worthy of praise. And in a very real way, the cultural differences, cultural shock that I experience when I go to another country, for Jesus' sake, that's kind of what we're experiencing when we dive into these two chapters. You know what I mean? There's a lot here that culturally feels very foreign, very strange. I mean, on my short list would be dealing with female captives of war, multiple wife scenarios, lost donkeys, and eating wild birds. (laughs) You know, it's just, we, we don't live in the ancient Near East. Nor are we under the authority of the Mosaic law in a covenantal sense like the nation of Israel. And yet our God hasn't changed. So appreciated Mary Beth Brenner praying that, praising God for that this morning. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so here's what that means, okay? That that means, that makes every law in this passage, every single one, no matter how foreign or strange or Otherworldly, it strikes you, it's exceedingly relevant for you. Why, Matthew? Well, here's why. Because every law in this passage, it reveals the glory of the lawgiver. It shows you like a mirror, here's what God is like. When when we look into the mirror of God's word, praise God that what reflects back to us is more than our own image. You know the most important thing you'll ever see when you look in the mirror of God's word? It's God. <laughs> it's who God is. It's His character. It's it's His glory. Do you know who sponsored the first law in the United States regulating how fast you could drive a car? Nathan Campbell. Do you know who did this? <laughs> no. <laughs> Well, I didn't. I had to look it up because I was curious. But I learned that State Representative Robert Woodruff submitted a bill to the Connecticut General Assembly in 1901 limiting automobiles, ready for this, to the blazing speed of 12 miles an hour. And that was pushing it. That was pushing it. Here's the question for you. Does that bill actually went and looked at a photocopy of the original Adopted bill in their archives. Does that bill tell us anything reliable about Robert Woodruff's character? No, no. It doesn't mean he cared about automobile safety. I mean, his wife could have put him up to that, right? You know, he could have just been doing the bidding of some lobbyists to get reelected. We we could try to find out things about the guy, but but that law itself doesn't reveal, doesn't tell us anything inherently about Robert Woodruff. The law of God reveals wonderful things about his character. It's not like that law, okay? That, that, this is what makes God's law different than our laws. God's law is a perfect reflection of who he is and the kind of people we're called to be in light of who he is. In other words, the law reveals the lawgiver. So important as you're reading Deuteronomy. The law reveals the lawgiver that we might be conformed into his character. It reveals the lawgiver so we can be conformed into his character. So we're gonna we're gonna answer and seek to ask two questions for all the sections of law in this passage. Okay? Two questions. We're gonna come back to these again and again. One, what does this law tell us about God? One of my goals in the way that I preach, the way all of us preach in this church, is to equip you to read your Bible. You should learn how to read your Bible from the way we preach. So one, what does this law tell us about God? Two, what does it mean for us to be conformed into his character? We're gonna use those over and over again this morning. So what does the first group of laws, we're gonna handle these in six groups, lingering more on the first three, then we're gonna pick up the pace on the last three. What does the first group of laws here teach us, reveal to us, about the lawgiver? Okay? Point number one that he defends the weak and the vulnerable. He defends the weak and the vulnerable. Look at verse 10, chapter 21. There's a, the case study here opens with a scenario that God initiates, or was about to initiate. Israel would soon be waging war against her enemies. Outside the land of Canaan, God grants them victory and their enemies are taken captive, including some beautiful women. Don't you know how God just knows the way we think and work and see? Look at verse 11. You see among the captives a beautiful woman and you desire to take her home to be your wife. Now here's where we have to be really honest. An Israelite warrior could have easily thought, God gave these enemies into my hand this woman included. So that means I can do whatever I want with her. This is God's doing. So now I can do whatever I want. That's exactly how the nations around Israel acted. Because women were often abused and raped and enslaved and treated as property. It shall not be so in Israel, Moses says. God's blessings come with God's requirements. Okay, God's God's word guides us in how to steward God's gifts. And in this case, Yahweh laid, laid down two requirements in this case. First, she must be given time to make a decisive and dignified break with her former way of life and her people. Shaving your head, paring your nails, removing your normal clothing, your old clothing. Those were cultural expressions of mourning, of grieving. That the woman had to die to her old life, including her family loyalties and the false gods they worshipped. Second, notice an Israelite warrior had, had to, they must, honor the woman by physically providing for her for a whole month. And only then could he take her as his wife, not as a concubine or a slave. Only then could he take her as his wife and have sexual relations with her. That was radically countercultural. Christopher Wright captures this attitude when he says, listen, the physical and emotional needs of the woman and her utter vulnerability were given moral and legal priority over the desires and claims of the man in his victorious strength. Such is the way of our God, friends. He is a defender of the weak. He defends the weak and the vulnerable. He is watching, friend, how you relate to those that are under your power and under your influence, whether that's a friend or a co worker or a spouse or a family member or a child. Guys, he's especially watching how you use your physical strength. He's watching. Do do you protect the women in your life? Even if that means protecting them from yourself. Or do you take advantage of them? If the same warrior decided, I want to divorce her, I'm done with her, I don't like her. And notice God is not endorsing divorce. He had to let the woman go wherever she wanted. She was free. Now, whether that meant remaining at Israel or, or returning to her family, though she was originally a captive, he could not sell her into slavery for personal gain. Why not? Look at verse 14. Because you have already humiliated her enough. By what? by divorcing her for the simple and unbiblical reason that you don't like her anymore. He defends the weak and the vulnerable. The the next scenario in, in verses 15 to 17 is on the same theme. It protects another class of vulnerable women. And in this case, it's a second wife who's not her husband's favorite and her oldest son. Notice here, friends, God never, ever endorses polygamy in scripture, okay? To the contrary, you go back and read Genesis 2, God establishes the institution of marriage as what? A covenant relationship between one man and one woman for life. But as with divorce in verse 14, God regulates the situations our sin creates to what? To protect the vulnerable, to defend the weak. In in Israel's day, the firstborn son had a a, a right, a cultural traditional right to a double portion of his dad's inheritance. Scripture nowhere mandates that practice, by the way, that that was a, a cultural norm and it came with significant responsibility in case you're thinking, well, you know, I guess it's always the oldest son that gets the speedboat. It's like, no, no. The firstborn son had to provide for his parents in their old age. And once his dad died, he was responsible for providing for everyone in the family, including any of his sisters that were unmarried to that point. So if a man had two wives and his firstborn son belonged to the wife he didn't love, look at verse 16, he could practice favoritism. Partiality, how? By treating the son of the loved as the firstborn in preference to the son of the unloved, who is the firstborn. You may not do it, Moses says. Verse 17, the right of the firstborn is his. What's that law tells about the lawgiver? <laughs> Same thing, God's a defender of the weak, the vulnerable. So, so what's the lesson for us today? We must not bend the rules of justice to favor our friends and injure our enemies. Don't bend the rules of justice to favor your friends and and injure enemies. How how often, think about this, okay? How often does, does our sense of what someone is rightly entitled to receive from us change based on whether we like them or not? You ever notice that? What is this person entitled to receive from me? Well, first let me decide, do I like them? If a politician we like is charged with a crime, a politician we like, we declare the whole thing is an absolute scam. Notice that, seeing that on Facebook. But if a politician we don't like is indicted, what do we, what do we say? Well, it's about time he got what's coming to him. Friend, we don't have time to linger a little more here, but, but remember this, okay? Our commitment to biblical love and justice, biblical love and justice is not tested by how you treat your friends, but how you treat your enemies. That's the point. Do you play favorites with your employees or children? Or do you give the neighbor next to you what he is due as an image bearer of God? Even when you don't like him very much or at all, even when it's within your power to withhold good from him. Who is our lawgiver? The whole first section shouts, he defends the weak and the vulnerable. He defends the weak and the vulnerable. Point number two. Who is the lawgiver? He is full of justice and mercy. Full of justice and mercy. Verses 18 to 23. And in 18 through 21, look there. We're off to another scenario. This is like the fast forward tour of situations sin creates in Israel, right? Moses is dealing with a stubborn and rebellious son. Verse 18, who what? Will not obey the voice of his father with the voice of his mother though they discipline him he will not listen to them so what are these parents supposed to do verse 21 bring him to the elders of the city so that the men of the city can stone him to death question why why was publicly flaunting the authority of your parents a capital crime that can seem downright cruel to our American sensibilities. These are the kinds of passages that people can point to and say, see, that? that's why I could never be a Christian. That God needs a makeover. He's going to be my God. Why is that a capital crime in Israel? Friend, it's it's because the son isn't just rejecting his parents' voice. He's rejecting God's voice. He's rejecting the authority of God. That's that's the ultimate reason for the fifth commandment, right? To honor your father and mother. Honor the Lord by honoring your father and mother. The, The entrenched rebellion here is threatening the spiritual life of the entire community. Verse 20, the man has abandoned himself to sensuality as a glutton and as a drunkard. His his behavior is what? It's public, it's visible, it's scandalous. And it's the very sort of sin that the Lord warned would send the entire nation into exile. Now under the new covenant, the place we live in redemptive history, this side of Jesus death, and resurrection, we obey the command in verse 21, look there, to purge the evil from your midst by doing what? By practicing church discipline. We've talked about this, by by removing people from membership in the church when unrepentant sin in their life is is equally public and visible and scandalous. But but while the, the temporal consequences of sin have changed, what hasn't changed? Character of God, remember? Who the lawgiver is. That hasn't changed. So, so, what does this law tell us about God? That He's a holy God. He's a holy God who requires holiness from His people, regardless of their age. And He doesn't tolerate unrepentant sin. And, and there's, a, there's a special warning. There's a, we have to linger here. There's a special warning to young men in this passage. If you are a guy between the ages of 10 and 30, I want you to listen to me. Listen to the Lord. There is a reason, guys, that this case study is not about daughters. Can daughters rebel against the authority of their parents? Yes. Yes. But I would argue that throughout history, in every culture, in every time, even in the history of the church, it is young men who are uniquely vulnerable to pride. Uniquely vulnerable. J.C. Ryle in his book, um, Thoughts for Young Men, makes the same point. If you remember this our church, you may know that most of the discipline situations, the vast majority that we've navigated over the last couple of years, they all involved men. And of those, the overwhelming majority involved young men. Take heed, my brothers. Take heed. Okay? Be on guard against a stubborn and rebellious attitude in your heart. Be on guard. Where you see that, confess that to an older brother in the faith. Ask for prayer. Strive for the humility, guys, without which no one will see the Lord. And, And when we need to discipline an unrepentant member, remember all of us, okay? Please remember this discipline is an expression of God's grace for the church. It's God's grace for his people. When, when discipline takes place, all of us look at verse 21 should what, what does Moses say? Should hear and fear. That that's not a fear like, Oh no, I hope I don't get the hammer too. That that's a fear of God. That, that's a fear that remembers the holiness of God, that, that perceives the, the sinfulness of our own hearts, that cries out to God for help to not be stubborn and rebellious friend. This law reflects what about the lawgiver? We serve a God of absolute justice who will not tolerate sin. And yet, He's also a God of abundant mercy. Abundant mercy. In, in, the, in the ancient Near East the body of someone who had been executed was often hung in a public place as a a deterrent to other people to, to not commit the same crime. And when that happens, look at verse 23. Moses says, His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him on the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God. Do do you realize, friends, maybe you've never, never recognized this, that that curse, that shame, is what every one of us deserves on account of our sin. Every one of us. And that is precisely what God became for us. Listen to Paul in Galatians 3, 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a what? A curse for us. For it is written, cursed, he's quoting Deuteronomy here, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Have you ever thought about Who killed the Son of God? Who killed the Son of God? I mean, it was the Jews who falsely accused him, right? It was the Romans who unjustly crucified him. But who killed him? The father did. Isaiah 53.10 It was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He has put him to grief. Why would the father crush the son? Because in that moment, my friend, as, as Jesus hung on that cross, he bore the guilt and shame and curse of sin. That's why he received the judgment that we deserve. So when you consider what, what is the heart of the gospel, what, what is the, what's the heart of Christianity. What what is this this message that that Chris was praying earlier we would be faithful to preach to ourselves and, and share with the people around us? What is it? It's this, friend the good news that God became a man to bear our curse so that all who trust in him for salvation could stop hiding in shame and fear. That's the gospel. So fear not, Christian. Fear not. Jesus bore your curse. Jesus carried your shame into the grave. He's he's removed your defilement, your shame, so that you can confess your sin, you can be cleansed of your sin, and you can discover to your eternal joy that the God of justice is also a God of abundant mercy. He's a God of justice, but but he's also a God of mercy. So I was praying this morning. The Lord brought to mind just how how quickly, maybe you can identify with this friend, how quickly we live our lives just plagued, weighed down by this perpetual sense of shame for the things we've done. Th- things you want nobody to know about. Things you hope to God don't don't get revealed on the final day. Things you've thought this week or or you didn't do, but you you've visualized yourself doing them or or things you've said or things you've watched, things you've done with your body. That shame is more real than you know. That shame is not a mirage. That shame is not just, you you need to feel better about yourself or, you know, we all stumble in many ways or nobody's perfect or you just sort of let it go. No, that shame is more real than you know. Because that shame is exactly what sinners receive and experience before a holy God. And that shame is exactly what Jesus Christ came to take away, my friend. It's exactly what he came to take away. You, you do not have to live under the shame of your sin. There, there is no atoning, saving value to walking around, living your life, holding up a bag of sin and shame over your head as if, as if somehow you could make yourself suffer enough to please God. That's a false gospel. You are not the savior of the world. if, If you for one moment bear the weight of the curse of sin that we rightly deserve, you will die. But Jesus bore that so you would not have to die. Do not live walking around under the shame of your sin. Because that's exactly what God and Christ came to take away. Who is the lawgiver? He's full of justice and mercy. Number three, and now we pick up the pace. Who is the lawgiver? First four verses of 22. He does not ignore the afflicted. He does not ignore the afflicted. If, If the previous scenarios dealt with our response to sin, The next few scenarios address our response to misfortune, this one in particular. So what should we do, here's the case study, when a neighbor, someone around us, is experiencing material trouble or loss? What should we do? Look at verse 1, chapter 22. You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and ignore them. You shall take them back to your brother. And if he doesn't live near you and you don't know who he is... I love how practical this is. You shall bring it home to your house, and it shall stay with you until your brother seeks it, then you shall restore it to him. Now, before you tell me I don't have ox, sheep, or any cattle, so somebody tell Gabe and Steph Bowman about this next Sunday, and then we'll just move on to the next section. Don't do that. Listen carefully, because the Lord's the Lord's establishing important requirements here for what biblical compassion looks like. What's biblical compassion look like when our neighbor has a material need? Let me give you three of them, okay, quickly. First, compassion pays attention. Compassion pays attention. Verse one, you shall not see and ignore. Verse three, you may not ignore it. Verse four, you shall not see and ignore him. I mean, how, how many times does God have to say that? Why does he repeat it? Because it is so easy, brothers and sisters so easy to be so consumed with, with our comfort, our convenience, our security, right? Our own little lives that we give no attention to suffering people around us. We say, I'm just too busy. That That's too messy. I mean, even if I got involved, like, I couldn't fix that. I can't fix myself. I don't want to touch that. Well, what does our God say? What does God say when when someone has a significant material physical need? Psalm 22 24. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from them, but he has what? He's heard, right? Or Psalm 9 verse 12, he does not forget the cry of the afflicted. What's the point? Compassion pays attention because our God pays attention. So we have to pay attention. Second, compassion takes action. Compassion takes action. Don't don't miss the obvious here, okay? There's no biblical category in 22, one through four for a bless their heart, I'll be sure to add your donkey to my prayer list or why aren't the pastors or the deacons doing something in response to this situation? I mean, who's their community group leader anyway? Bless their heart. (laughs) Now, both taking a lost ox or sheep back to a friend's farm or bringing them, what, home to your home? Those were, that wasn't like press a button and bring some people in to take care of that. That was an intensely personal action. That was muddy. That that was messy. That was smelly. That that was sweaty. Loving people is always like that. It's always like that. It's personal. An example, I mean, doesn't everyone want to be part of a welcoming church? <laughs> I've never met a guest that came in here, visitor that came in here, and said, you know what, pastor? I'm looking for a church that's not welcoming. I, everybody wants to be part of a welcoming church. At least that I've met. But friend, are you willing to create and sustain that culture by in, inviting people you don't know very well into your home? Practicing hospitality? We have to take action. Third, compassion bears the cost of sacrificial love. Now, notice this little phrase in the middle of verse two. This is really provoking. And it shall stay with you until your brother seeks it. Well, how long is that, Moses? As long as it takes. <laughs> you mean I have to pay for their food and water? That's not my animal. That's not my problem. I didn't save money to do any of that. That I, I can't afford that. Call the pastor. <laughs> Real love is always costly. There, there's a cost to having someone live in your home who's between homes. There's a cost to devoting a Saturday morning, to helping a friend in the church or your adult children work on their home. There's a cost to serving the church in an area that doesn't line up perfectly with your personal preferences. We don't, we don't want to live. God doesn't call us to live, friend, as if every need you see is your personal responsibility. There's one savior of the world and it's not you. It's Jesus Christ. But there's a world of difference, hear me. There's a world of difference between a, that's their problem way of doing life. And a, Lord, how can I help way of doing life? World of difference between those. Galatians 6.10 captures the heart of biblical compassion here. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Friend, compassion in response to material need isn't a personality thing. Some people have it. Some people don't know. It's the spiritual fruit of a gospel. It's what happens when you experience the compassion of God for you. You see the lawgiver, who is he? He doesn't ignore the afflicted. He expects us to do the same. Number four, who is the lawgiver? He created us for a purpose. Verse five. Verse five. The Lord cares about what? Providing and protecting for those who bear his image. We've seen that. The Lord also cares that we live in a way that reflects the goodness of his creative design. Genesis one twenty seven, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. Friend, your, your biological sex is not an accident. And it's God's way of revealing the gender identity that he's called you to pursue. For His glory and your good. That that means our maleness and our femaleness isn't a a cultural artifact or or an aspect of our identity that that we can customize like a Chick Fil A Chick-fil-A order. It's it's a gift from God. It's a gift from God. Okay. Is is that gift our maleness and femaleness? Is that subject to the brokenness and curse and trouble of sin and living in a fallen world? Absolutely but it's still a gift from God. It's it's not a choose your own adventure. Living as the man God created you to be, living as the woman God created you to be, is one of the most important ways we reflect his image, my friend. And that means, let's get real practical here. The clothing we wear as men and women, no, no less than every other detail of our life, is not just a spiritually neutral matter. Okay, it's an area of life where we have to choose, are we going to to submit to God's authority by embracing his creative design for us or are we gonna just do our own thing and go our own way? That's what the prohibition against cross-dressing in verse five is all about. Now, listen carefully. (laughs) You won't find a cross-cultural definition in scripture for what constitutes a man's garment or a woman's cloak. So do not come up to me today afterward and say, look at me, Williams. Is this acceptable? (laughs) Okay? I'm not going to pull out some hidden list out of my back pocket. Well, you know, your, your sleeves aren't quite long enough. It's like, you won't find it. Okay? Why not? Because what men and women wear varies widely across different cultures and different time periods. God knows that. But here's the core issue, okay? Here's the core issue. Don't get distracted in the weeds. Here's the issue. Does the way you dress, just like every other detail of your life, does the way you dress, does it communicate joy or discontent with the fact that God made you as a man or a woman? That's the question. If you're a woman, does, does your clothing say, I delight in being a woman? Or if you're a man, does your, does your clothing say, I delight in being a man? Or does it say something else? I'm not, I'm not talking here about being traditional or shopping from Land's End <laughs> or being culturally conservative. You don't be too avant-garde, Jesus will smack you. Like, no. No, I'm talking about signaling to a watching world in culturally appropriate ways that the sexual identity God gave you is exceedingly good. That's what I'm talking about. No detail in your life, Christian, is exempt from Christ's call for us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling we have received. Ephesians 4.1. And that includes your gender. Who's the lawgiver? He created us for a purpose. Number five, he upholds and protects our life. Upholds and protects our life. Verses 6 through 8, 22. What in the world is the problem with eating a mother bird and her eggs? <laughs> and I'm getting hungry right now, so I think I would eat all of it right now. What, what's the problem? Well, everyone dies. That's the problem. There's no animal life left to produce life for future generations. Living long in the land, God tells Israel, living long in land requires that you consume the natural resources I've entrusted to you in a sustainable way, not a selfish way. You know, there are are times that I, I hear this far too often. I hear professing Christians talk about environmental stewardship as if it's just a bunch of crockery. Just a bunch of crockery. I have a right to burn what I want. I have a right to shoot what I want. I'm a bible believing Christian. I'm not one of those crazy tree-hugging nature worshipers. Bring on the paper plates. <laughs> Friends, we serve a God. We have a creator. Who delights to preserve and uphold and sustain life, not just for one generation, but for many generations. That's what the lawgiver's like. That, that's what the law in verses 6 through 8 tells us about God. And he requires the same attitude from us as his people. In other words, categorically speaking, environmental stewardship isn't a liberal issue, it's a biblical issue. Categorically. Are we ruling over creation in a sustainable way that that nourishes future life, even as we benefit from it in the present? Or are we we calloused, selfishly ignorant of the long-term consequences of our action? The the same heart to protect and uphold life plays out in verse 8. Build a parapet or railing for the roof of your house. I mean, it's like, what? What? How'd you get to that from the mom and their eggs thing? Well, what's, what's that reveal about the lawgiver? Well, here's where you have to know that in ancient Near East, people pretty much lived life on the roofs. They were flat. It was cooler than being inside the house. You ate up there. You slept there. And building a railing reflects something about who God is. He's a God who cares deeply about preserving human life. So if, if you work in a blue-collar trade, I want to encourage you, if you know far too much about building, pulling permits <laughs> or building codes and regulations, maybe, maybe you you design buildings or you're an engineer and there's so many codes and regulations and rules and parapets abound in your work. All right? I want to encourage you. You are making much of God in your work. You're not just... Tone the line or keeping the county off your back. You're reflecting the character of God by building stuff in a way that protects human life. You're imaging the lawgiver. Because what does this law what does this whole section tell us about the lawgiver? He's a God who upholds and protects our life. Lastly, verses nine through twelve, who's the lawgiver? He's pure in all his ways. He's pure in all his ways. Look at verse nine. I think at first glance, this verse in particular can seem utterly pointless. (laughs) You you shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed. Or verse 11. You shall not wear cloth of wool and linen mixed together. I mean, I read that this week and I thought, I think my smart wool socks have cotton and wool. You know, it's just like, am I on safe ground here, Lord? (laughs) I mean, Or maybe this is your reaction. Isn't that going a little too far? I mean, back to my earlier comment. Isn't this a case study for the kinds of stuff that just, yeah, I don't want to have anything to do with Christianity. That's just dumb. That doesn't even make sense. There's not even a practical benefit to that. And you know, it's interesting. You read commentaries. Lots of people try to come up with all sorts of hidden pragmatic benefits and values and, well, here's the reason why. Friend, here's where we need to land. Nothing our king requires, whether then or now, is ever pointless. Never pointless. So what do these laws tell us about who God is? That he's what? He's utterly perfect completely pure in all his ways. There, there's nothing, nothing mixed or compromised or watered down or partial or blended in his character. He's what? He's set apart, he's holy, he's unblemished. Here's the connection. He established specific rules in Israel, not just to be random and pull power plays, but to what? Remind them and the surrounding nations that Yahweh isn't like all the other gods. And because Yahweh is different, his people have to be different. Because Yahweh is pure, his people have to be pure. And Paul says the same thing in 2 Corinthians 6, 14, when he calls us today to to flee worldliness and pursue purity in every area of our life. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness or what accord has Christ with Belial. And be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. I hope you realize Paul isn't talking about just, Christian, be different for the sake of being different. You'll get points in heaven if you're different. No, he's talking about devoting every area of our life to pleasing the Lord. Which means every area of your life, what you watch, what you read, The the words you speak, the way you spend your money, it should be noticeably different than the world. Who is God? He's pure in all his ways and calls us to the same. The law reveals the character of the lawgiver. That's the point. God is a defender of the weak, He's full of justice and mercy. He doesn't ignore the afflicted. He created us for a purpose. He delights to uphold and protect our life. He's pure in all his ways. The laws in these chapters shout Israel, King's way, behold the goodness of your God. But let's end with this the law cannot conform you into the character of the lawgiver. It can reveal his character. We've seen that today. But the law can't conform you into God's image. That has to come from the Holy Spirit. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3 Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from staring at the law of God until it magically changes us. No. For this comes from the Lord, the lawgiver, who's the Spirit. The, it's, what's the law do? It reveals the character of the lawgiver, the kind of people. We have to become in light of who our God is. But, but it's the spirit who conforms us more and more into that image. It's the spirit that will make you a man who defends the weak. Or a woman who's full of justice and mercy. Who doesn't ignore the afflicted. Who embraces God's purpose for your life. Who upholds and protects life. Who's, who's pure in all your ways. It's the spirit that conforms us into the character of the lawgiver. But you know how he'll do that? He'll use God's law to show us who is God, who is the lawgiver. And then as we see that, cry out to him for his help. He will work in your heart, Christian, to make you more like the giver. So let's pray and ask for the Spirit's help to do that. Jesus, you are perfect in all your ways. Thank you for revealing who you are in the law. We pray you'd help us to not forget who you are, to see who you are in all that you have spoken and that you would fill us with your spirit, Lord God. Right now, empower us, help us, equip us to be conformed into your image. Make us like you, we pray, Lord.